Lord Jesus, thank you that you command us, and in commanding, you empower us to ask every day for our daily bread. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you give us each day our daily bread in sometimes odd ways. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you command us, and in commanding, you empower us to take and eat the real bread, the bread of heaven that is yourself. Lord Jesus, we want more than just the daily bread. We want to taste today the hors d'oeuvre, at least, of the wedding feast of the bride. Come, Lord Jesus, and feed us with yourself for your namesake. The book of Exodus, like most of the Bible, only more so than most of the Bible, is what scholars sometimes call developed literature. What we mean by calling Exodus developed literature is that it looks like having been written quite gradually over a long period of time with the involvement of many different storytellers and writers. Exodus was not composed by just one single human author, either writing or dictating the text from scratch, like say Paul dictating a letter to his secretaries. Exodus itself has a somewhat complicated subplot inside it that tells about Moses and God, both writing down and rewriting God's Torah commands in several installments in a process which doesn't refer at all to the narrative parts of Exodus. In Mark 12, some Sadducees quote Deuteronomy with the formula, Moses wrote. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy do not claim that any individual wrote them as books. Instead, Exodus as we read it is the product of many generations of storytelling, written down in several drafts and stages and then eventually edited into one narrative. I think this complexity is beautiful because it means that our Bible is the work of the Holy Spirit acting in and through whole prophetic communities through the ups and downs of centuries of covenant life. In particular, it does something for how I hear the stories of Exodus when I reflect that the final stage of writing down and editing together the stories and various sources almost certainly happened during the couple of generations that many Jewish leaders were forced to spend in exile in Babylon. The people who did eventually actually compile Exodus in writing in the form we have it, did so in order to save the ancient stories from being lost and in order to apply them freshly to the survival of God's people in their exile. 
In Exodus, that developed quality appears right away, I think, when we ask ourselves what Exodus is about. You might think that that's a, a silly question, but it is not simply obvious what the book of Exodus is centrally about. In Hebrew, Exodus is named Shemot, the book of names. That refers to the opening sentence. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. But when I, as a Gentile Christian, living in what feels like the end of days, read Exodus as a book of Israel's names, my attention is drawn to another book of names, which Moses and God mentioned for the first time in the Bible in Exodus 32, just after the terrible crisis of the golden calf. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now you go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. When I read Exodus as the book of names of the sons of Israel, I also read it trusting that despite all my sins, my name is written eternally in that better book of names at which it hints. I pray like Moses with all my heart that God will remember the names of those of his people who seem to have made their own gods. I trust that my name is beside Moses' name in God's own indelible book of the names of the daughters and sons of God, forgiven and adopted in Jesus and written by God in Jesus' blood, never to be blotted out. And at the last day, Jesus will read out our names from God's book of Shemot. And I guess my sins will be there to be put away forever. But I know I shall be truly alive at last. That's where I find myself in Exodus. That for me is the center of Exodus. Yet when Greek-speaking Jews, living by the way in Egypt, translated Exodus into Greek, roughly 250 years before Jesus was born, they gave this book the title Exodus, The Way Out. So those Egyptian Jewish Greek translators of the Bible wanted to highlight that the book is about Israel's way out of slavery in Egypt. But I want you to notice that really only the first 15 chapters are about the deliverance, the exodus proper from slavery in Egypt. Now this will take a little concentration. Chapters 19 to 24 
are about the giving of the covenant and the Torah at Mount Sinai. In between the deliverance from Egypt and the revelation at Sinai are four chapters of wilderness stories. My impression is that those wilderness stories and their desert themes matter a great deal to the exiled Jewish editors who hoped to see Israel return to its heritage. Then in two other chunks, chapters 25 to 31, and again chapters 35 to 40, there are detailed instructions for the construction and use of the tent of meeting that would serve as the model for our restored temple in Jerusalem when and if the exiles could return. I think it's interesting that in between the two chunks of instructions about how to set up and run God's tent of worship, how to run the temple, the editors decided to place chapters 32 to 34, those middle chapters that tell of the golden calf and the crisis which led to the painful reaffirmation of the covenant and the mention of God's hidden book of names. So can you picture the architecture of the book of Exodus? There is a first half in three parts, deliverance from slavery, wilderness experiences, revelation of Torah at Sinai. Then there's a second half, also in three parts, instructions on setting up the tent of meeting, the crisis of the golden calf, the actual setting up of the sanctuary. This will be on the exam. The point here is that reasonable, faithful Jewish and Christian readers of Exodus might well debate what the central core message of the book is, or what its most important message is for any particular community in real time. Is it the gospel message of Passover, God's deliverance of his people from slavery? Is it the gift of Torah at Sinai? God's revealing of his will for Israel and for the world. I suspect that for the editors of Exodus in their Babylonian exile, the core message of Exodus was about God's provision of a tent of meeting and a liturgy of sacrifices that would be the warrant for a future rebuilding of a priestly Judaism. There's no wrong answer here, so this won't be on the exam because Exodus is constructed to pose the question. But I don't want us to underestimate the importance of those two in-between sections that I mentioned. The section we're reading from today that talks about Israel's desert experiences and the later section that talks about the idolatrous failure of the golden calf moment. So let's focus now on one of the stories from that first in-between section of wilderness stories. I think these stories matter to Christians as well as to faithful Israelites because for every dramatic deliverance from slavery and for every dramatic moment of revelation on the mountaintop, most of us will have to grumble our way through years of learning obedience and receiving grace on unglamorous, though still miraculous rations of daily bread. 
Let's focus particularly on the desert story of Israel's experience of manna for 40 years in the wilderness. Are we good? Yeah, maybe a little louder. Maybe a little louder. Do, do you remember? Do you remember that notion of developed literature? Um, in relation to this particular story of the manna, I think it means that there isn't just one storyteller at work. Instead, I suggest that we imagine a group of people remembering and retelling together the shared stories of their pre-exilic past. Stories about their ancestors' even more distant past. Stories of the desert, which might suddenly have become more relevant to them in exile. I imagine them gathered in a circle where no one voice has full control of how the story is going to be told. I like to think of this story as resembling a conversation about family memories around a Montreal kitchen table. So the story opens with a voice I rather like. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. It happens that the first place of Christian worship that I can personally remember is Elam Chapel in Winnipeg. I suppose the people who named Elam Chapel, a bit like the people who named Emmaus Anglican Church, found in that name a reference to a place where God's people found a moment of grace along the way. If you think about it, the Bible gives absolutely no reason why we need to know about Elam, except that Israel found water and trees there in the desert. I'm thankful that somebody in the storytelling circle said, hey, don't forget that little pause by the waters of Elam. Then a different voice chimes in with one of the central themes of our story, grumbling. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Here we have a rare moment of congregational unity. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. What I think is most interesting, however, is that God's reply takes their complaint seriously and without anger. God can actually handle our grumbling. So God says rather simply to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law, my Torah or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, 
it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Compare this straightforward speech of God to Moses with the much more elaborate speech of Moses and Aaron that they then make to the people. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you should grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, it's against the Lord. Maybe I'm also grumbling unfairly against Moses and Aaron. But Moses seems to me to be going beyond God here. God seems interested in using the Israelites' pretty reasonable anxiety about getting food in the desert. Three chapters before God gives his Torah to Israel on Sinai, God tests whether Israel will be ready to obey a Torah law of God, which will not always seem reasonable. So God will rain down bread from heaven, but we will still have to get out and gather it. And somehow the sixth day will be different. For Moses, by contrast, though I guess understandably, the issue is much more that when the people grumble against us, Moses and Aaron, they're actually grumbling against God. In this whole story, it is Moses who condemns grumbling and Moses, not God, who gets angry. Is it just me? But when God says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, I hear a promise. When Moses says, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, the promise seems more mixed with threat. Now, of course, another voice comes along to remind me that I am, after all, perhaps being unfair to Moses and Aaron, who do, after all, speak for God. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. I would love to preach a whole other sermon. Maybe you can preach it to yourselves later this week. On the text, come near before the Lord for he has heard your grumbling. God does not despise our grumbling in faith. But in Exodus, the repeated response is for Israel to come near to God, to transform grumbling into obedience. It's interesting to me that it is Moses who in verse eight, first mentions that the, the Lord is also providing not only bread in the morning, but also meat in the evening. In the Bible story, there are actually a good few places where Moses seems to me to get out ahead of God and where God actually retroactively backs Moses up. Anyhow, in Exodus 16, the whole thing about the quails is a bit of an extra. 
It's really only in verses 12 and 13 that God promises meat, and that meat turns out to be quail. You may remember that in, that in Numbers 11, there is a somewhat different memory of quails piled two feet deep in the desert, provoking gluttony and then illness in the people of Israel who eat too much. In Numbers 11, the story is about quail meat with a side order of manna. In Exodus 16, the story is really about the manna as bread. Only someone keeps piping up. Don't forget the meat. There was quails too. Now, of course, someone in every storytelling circle is a joker. It's always difficult to know when or if the Bible is supposed to be funny. There is nothing harder or riskier across cultures and languages than to discern humor. But I think it is objectively true that there is an intended pun in Exodus 15. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, Man who? What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Yum, yum. When the people of Israel say to one another, what is it? What they say in Hebrew is, man who? What the? The very name, manna, whatchamacallit, points to the fact, also evident in the story itself, that whatever manna was, it wasn't bread. Later in Exodus 16, there is a voice in the room that recognizes that the name mana is odd and tries to offer some more upbeat discussion of what the stuff was like. Now the house of Israel called its name mana. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Numbers 11 also mentions coriander and notes that you could make the stuff into pancakes. Our passage says that you could bake it or boil it. Let's assume that it was delicious, at least for the first 10 or 20 years. <laughs> it still wasn't bread. At the end of our passage, a voice will chime in to point out that the people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So it's significant that God commands his people to gather and eat this stuff and to eat it in faith as bread. And frankly, they had to trust Moses and God to eat the stuff. An important voice in our storytelling circle is heavily emphasizing that God did not just say, 
You can eat this if you want. Try it, you'll like it. Instead, Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. God's provision of manna in the desert, even before the giving of the Torah on Sinai, is very much about giving an opportunity for obedience. Interestingly, Exodus has almost nothing to say about the distinctive food laws that God gives Israel in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the principle of obedience is here. As the rabbis sometimes point out, there is nothing in principle wrong with pork and shellfish as foods, if they're handled correctly. But for that very reason, they are useful to Israel as a way of practicing obedience toward God. Conversely, there is nothing in principle right about manna as bread, but it provides the necessary physical medium for practicing obedience toward God in the desert place. And when Jesus gives us bread and wine as means by which to experience in the meantime his physical presence, he does not simply invite us to taste. He also commands. Jesus says in Matthew, take, eat, this is my body. Paul and Luke have Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me. And the reformed faith tradition in which I was trained often emphasizes that it is Jesus' command and our obedience which allow us to use otherwise ordinary bread and wine to feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Now, there's an especially beautiful interjection in the manna story, maybe especially for people like ourselves, exiled in a consumerist society, where people are defined so largely by how much we can get a hold of and by how much we can use up. The people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much, had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. If these verses weren't in the story, I guess no one would miss them. But they give the beautiful idea that although we do need to gather in order to receive God's grace properly, Nonetheless, God's provision for us, even God's physical material provision for our needs, does not follow the laws of capitalist economics. Paul thinks of this in 2 Corinthians 8, not in relation to how much Christians should gather and consume, but in relation to how much Christians should feel able to give for each other's needs. In God's economy, the rich and the poor can each afford to give without needing to score points on each other 
or turn a prophet. We heard that one voice in the manna story is looking forward to the long history of food laws in the Bible. Another voice now crops up to make us think about Sabbath in this story. Again, this is foreshadowing. The Sabbath commandment is not formally given to Israel until the Torah is given at Sinai in Exodus 20. I guess you know that Genesis alludes to Sabbath when it says that God rested from creation on the seventh day. And that's echoed in Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments. But you may not know that our story about manna gathering is the first place in the Bible where the word Shabbat, Sabbath, is used and where Israel is commanded to refrain from work to mark the seventh day as holy. I know that some of us in Emmaus are interested in embracing the concept of Sabbath rest more deeply, especially as a way of marking Sunday as the Lord's resurrection day. So I hope you will bear with me if I try now to make a distinction. I want to distinguish between Sabbath observance as commanded exclusively for Israel and for strangers and converts living within Israel and Sabbath rest as we may practice it in the freedom of the gospel without taking upon ourselves something that is proper and specific to Jews in their calling. I want to distinguish between embracing the concept of Sabbath rest as part of a not specifically Jewish Christian spirituality of which I am all in favor and observing the Sabbath as God commands Israel in the Torah, which I think is only mandated for people living intentionally as Jews or Samaritans. I hope that's a helpful and not a confusing distinction. It may be good to remember that Exodus as we have it was probably compiled among Jewish storytellers living in exile in Babylon, in non-Jewish communities. Their practice of the Sabbath was an expensive, even dangerous act of obedience, as well as celebration, that separated them from their Gentile overlords and neighbors. Exodus 20 commands Israelites and non-Israelites living with them to observe Sabbath by refraining from unnecessary work on the seventh day. Isaiah 56 understood that, to, that, understood that to mean that a Gentile or a eunuch who wants to enter the covenant with Israel should begin with Sabbath observance in the strict sense. I think it is a noble thing when Jews, even Jewish Christians, observe the Sabbath in order to affirm God's unbreakable promises to Israel. Jesus, of course, observed the Sabbath since he is Jewish. But he seems to have gotten in trouble sometimes for suggesting that being close to him might trump Sabbath observance, even for observant Jews. 
But I think we should be clear that in the New Testament, non-Jewish Christians are nowhere recommended to observe the Sabbath in this sense. Although if I were staying in a Jewish home, I would happily join them in their Sabbath celebrations. Nor does the New Testament ever suggest that the Lord's Day be observed as Sabbath. Though the New Testament likewise does not forbid this, and I'd be happy to say that my own Sunday practice is rather Sabbath inspired. So Hebrews three and four tell us that there will be a day, a day always called today, when believers may enter by faith into God's ultimate Sabbath rest. Hebrews urges us to strive to enter into Christ's Sabbath rest as a spiritual discipline that intentionally goes with Jesus beyond even the most careful Torah observance. That Sabbath rest is ours in Christ every day of the week. But what better day than Sunday to savor it purposefully? May I tax your patience with just one more voice from the circle of Exodus storytellers. We've heard the voice in Exodus, which emphasizes manna as foreshadowing Torah law of foods. We've heard the voice that emphasizes manna as foreshadowing Torah law of Sabbath. Now here's a voice which has manna foreshadowing the Torah law of the tent of meeting and the temple. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, the manna, be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony, the ark, to be kept. This is an oddly anachronistic voice among our storytellers. It requires that a jar of manna be preserved, remember it's tricky to preserve, be preserved to be placed in front of the ark of the testimony in the tent of meeting, which in Exodus 16 does not exist yet. And in fact, among all the mentions of the furnishings of the tent of meeting and later the temple in the rest of Exodus and elsewhere in the Bible, only in Hebrews 9.4 is there even one passing word about this mysterious jar of manna. In practice, the only place where you and I can see that old bread with which God fed his people in the desert is in the story in the Bible. It would take other sermons to consider the spiritual food in 1 Corinthians 10, or the bread of life in our gospel reading from John 6. But in those places, it is clear that those who ate the manna in the desert also died in the desert. So let me leave you with the promise of God for you for your future, if you will gather it. From Revelation 2, verse 17. Whoever has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
and I will give them a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, though often defeated, we are conquerors in Jesus' name. Give us today our daily practical bread in him. But give us also already today, by faith, a taste of that hidden manna and a whisper right now of our new names written on stone, which we receive now not on our own merits, but just for Jesus' sake. 